0: Great for a word, repeat after me, Holy Spirit. Allow me to hear this word so I can receive this word so I can live this word. And everybody said? Amen. amen, amen. Let me see them. Who has their Bibles? Who has their Bibles? Who has their Bibles? Ask it every Sunday, and I will not quit asking who has their Bibles. Good job. If you don't have one, you can, you can read with me. But my big thing is not that you just read the Bible in the house. I, and I believe God's people should so have God's word in God's house. Never quit doing that. But I happen to also believe with all my heart, regardless of what I read anywhere else or hear anybody else or any other pastor say, I happen to believe God's people should be in God's word so it can be exactly what God wants them to be. So the question isn't, did you just bring a Bible today? The question is, have you read your Bible every day this week? I've read my Bible every day this week, Pastor. Good job, guys. Good job. Now, if you haven't, why not? Well, I've been busy. How many of you have been busy this week? Right, right. Do we make time to do what we want to do? And if you're saying that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, should you not make time to spend with him every day? Yes, sir. So I'm going to encourage you, get into God's word every day. Take your Bibles, turn to 1 Chronicles. Today we're going to talk about 1 and 2 Chronicles. Now, i got a lot of material to cover. How many of you have ever read 1 and 2 Chronicles? That's 65 chapters. And we're going to get all 65 today. Today. All right, so here we go. What is our vision statement? I'd say about 20 of you said that. Okay, what is, our, now that you see it, what is our vision statement? Reach. reach and teach. Okay, reach people with the love of Jesus and then teach them how to love like Jesus. I saw this week that during our 16 years that we have on record, we've already seen 35 or 3,600 people come to know Jesus Christ. All right, so I, that's a lot of reaching in 16 years, would you agree? Yes, but about a year ago, I realized that the, well, I didn't realize, but just got irritated that the American church is literally biblically illiterate. Amen. You just don't know the Bible. How many of you would agree that you don't know the Bible as good as you should? There you go, okay. We're biblically illiterate, and, and for you to reach people is one thing, but then you got to teach them. If you remember Matthew 28, the Great Commission, Jesus said, go and teach them everything I have commanded. So I was like, "Bump it! I'm gonna do a series called Dust of Glory." Well, why? Reach people to love Jesus. We've done that, and a great job of that. Good job, church. But then teach them how to love like Jesus. How do you teach somebody to love like the Son of God? By teaching them the Word of God. I'm not gonna back off. I'm gonna to continue to push. First and Second Chronicles is not probably your coffee conversation of a morning. But when you understand why the author wrote 1 and 2 Chronicles and the purpose behind it, you'll go, oh, that was good. Oh, that was good. So that's what we're going to do this morning. So I want you to know that 1 Chronicles has 29 chapters. 2 Chronicles has 36 chapters. So when you add 29 and 36, how many you got? 65. Some of you are thinking. <laughs> okay. 65. That's a lot of chapters. Are you with me? That's a lot of chapters, so we're going to go into warp speed this morning and walk through 65 chapters as fast as we can. Now, the reason I want to do this, let me ask you this question. How many of you, growing up, through middle school, high school, and even college, enjoyed history? I used to think you were some weird people. (laughs) How many of you did not like history? Okay. Pastor Lawson used to tell me for years, one day it's going to click. You're going to love history because the Bible is history. And, and, and the truth is this. I didn't enjoy history through middle school, high school. I failed one class while I was at Clemson. One. You know what that one class was? <laughs> history. It's just memorizing all those dates and I didn't care. Why? Why are we consumed, with, why should I be concerned with the past when I want to live a life for the future? I'll tell you why, because it's hard to understand your future when you don't know your past. You need to know where you come from in order for you to go where God wants you to go. Now, you remember that as we move forward. Now, First and Second Chronicles, back in the day, used to be one book. That's when it was during the times of the Jews, and, but it was so big they couldn't put it onto one scroll. So they made it into... Two books. Now, First and Second Chronicles summarizes the entire Old Testament from Adam to the returned exiles. And you're going to see that in just a minute. But what you need to understand is that the author of First and Second Chronicles, we'll talk about that in a second, had a very specific purpose and point in why he was writing this history from Adam all the way to the returned exiles. And for you to understand that very specific point and that purpose, you need to understand where they came from. So I can't go all the way back to the beginning, but let's pick up our timeline with King David. King David dies because King da- was King David the greatest king they ever had? Yes. Okay, that's that not a trick question. Yes. Was King David the greatest, and I'm making a point of this because it's so important. Was King David the greatest king Israel ever had? Yes, yes he was. Yes, he was. And we saw King David die in 970 B.C., who becomes king after King David? Solomon. Solomon does. Very good. So we see Solomon's reign here for 40 years, from 970 to 930, 931. Anytime you see a date, and it could be off a year here, or a year there, don't get all bent out of shape. The Bible's not true. It goes back to the calendar. Don't have time for all that, but it's, it's, that's not a big deal, okay? The temple was constructed under whose reign? Solomon. King Solomon's t- Uh, That's why we call it Solomon's Temple, okay? And while Solomon built this, he built this incredible, incredible, incredible temple with all this gold, and then inside the Holy of Holies, what did he put? The Ark of the Covenant, and the Ark of the Covenant is where who dwelt? This is where God dwelt. Here's a picture of what it looked like inside. You have the outer area, you have the inner area, you have the holy area, then you have the Holy of Holy areas. And right here, inside, look, look at all the gold. But this is real gold. Inside, right here where the curtain would have been, the the veil that when Christ died, split in two, that was Herod's temple, but it it was a representation of the same thing. In here you see the Ark of the Covenant. It was here, at this moment in time, this is big, catch this, that Israel was at its greatest. You had a king who was the son of the greatest king ever, who was so radically in love with God that he built this incredible temple. The presence of God is dwelling among the people of God, and God is blessing their socks off. It is as it was supposed to be. It was the greatest time in the history of God's chosen people. Now, we're not going to turn there, but let's flip all the way back to 1 Kings, and let me show you exactly what I mean. And when the priest came out of the holy place, this is after Solomon had just built the temple, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. The glory of God himself was dwelling among his people just like he wanted. We've been saying this for months. God wanted a holy God, come on church, to come and dwell among an unholy people. And the, this unholy people are falling in love with God. They're worshiping God. The king loves God. Everybody's serving God. It's the greatest time in the history of Israel. And you think they would just continue to serve God, right? Now listen, listen. You know, a lot of time, this is, boy, I I try to say things nice. A lot of times, most of the time, no. Majority of time, people are followers. Is that fair, church? A lot of people claim to be leaders, but you know what leaders do? Watch this, this is tough. This is tough. You know what leaders do? They lead. That means they're out front. There's a lot of people who try to lead, but they try to lead among the people. Okay, you know why leaders try to lead among the people? Because that way when the bullets start flying, they got somebody to protect them. A real leader is out in front of the people, leading the people. King Solomon was a great leader. So when we get to 1 Kings 11 and Solomon loses his freaking mind, what do all the people do? They begin to lose their mind and chase all these pagan gods just like the leader did. That's why you better be careful who you vote for. Amen. You better have godly leadership because if we don't have godly leadership in our city, our state, our government, our country, will it take us away from what this country was built on? Amen. Not a political message, just a biblical message. Amen. You better be careful who you follow. Because in 1 Kings 11, Solomon turned from the Lord. And he turned, listen, listen, listen. He turned to money, to power, and to women. Have you heard of a lot of men fall because of power, money, and women? And he fell just like God said, don't do. And it was here that he wrote which book? Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. What was the point of Ecclesiastes? Everything is meaningless. It's nothing without God, and it's here that God sends the prophet Ahijah to Jeroboam. Who was Jeroboam? Jeroboam was Solomon's commanders of his army, and he sends him to him. He has this new robe on. He takes it off. He splits it into twelve different pieces. He takes ten pieces and he hands them to Jeroboam and says, "As there are twelve tribes, the kingdom will be divided, and ten of them will be given to you. Why?" Because Solomon turned his back on God. And what has happened in their history, the history after, and the history today, is you see people turn their back on God, and they think because they turn their back on God that it's just going to happen overnight, but what happens is kind of like the frog in the water. It's the slow, end away from the presence of God. And as God said, the kingdom was divided. And so back to our timeline, we see that in 931, right there after 1 Kings 11, 1 Kings 12, we see the kingdom was divided into what two kingdoms? The northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. In 722, we saw that the northern kingdom went where? Okay, where'd they go into exile? Assyria. Very good. They went to Assyria. Assyrians came in, kicked their butt, and took name. You would think that after the northern kingdom was taken, the southern kingdom would have taken notice of this and said, Huh. You know, God sent these men towards called prophets. He said, if you don't straighten up, you'll take it into exile. God takes the northern kingdom in exile. He tells the southern kingdom the same thing will happen. What does the southern kingdom do? Nah, we don't need to listen to the word of God. We're going to go live life how we want. And so what does God do? The exact same thing. He sends the Babylonians three times, and in 586, he finally says, that's it. I'm done with you. It destroys the temple, destroys the city takes them all to Babylon, and there's just a few people left in the city of Jerusalem. Well, because of Jeremiah 25:11, we know that the, northern king, the southern kingdom would be in Babylon for how many years? 70 years. And then we move forward 70 years to 539, and we see that Cyrus makes a decree. Welcome to the book of Ezra. In the book of Ezra, we see the decree was made. What was the decree? It's time for my exiles to go home. They go home, and they begin to rebuild the altar. They rebuild the altar. And then they start rebuilding the temple. But then they, you remember what happens to them? They what? They got scared. Why did they get scared? Because the government and the people of the city were coming after them, and they got scared. Now, God got tired of this after 16 years, and he sends who? Haggai. Very good. Haggai. And what was the point of Haggai? Get your butt back to work. All right, keep going on our timeline. Then after the decree, we saw after he sent Haggai and Zechariah, in 516, in 515, they finally finished the temple. Years later, we see Ezra return. And when Ezra returns in 515 BC, he, in, in the first group was 50,000. Now he takes another group with him. And then after Ezra comes, everybody's celebrating. And now Nehemiah comes. we are talking about just a couple of weeks. And they build the wall around the temple, around the city. Everything is back the way it's supposed to be. You have God's house with God dwelling inside of it, with the people coming back. No, Listen, listen. Knowing the history of their forefathers, you would think that they would want to come and serve God and everything would be the way it's supposed to be, right? Wrong. So what do you do? What do you do if you are some of the people who truly are in love with God, and you've seen God do exactly what he said he would. He sent your forefathers to exile. He's now brought them back, just like he said he would do. He has now rebuilt the temple, just like he said he would do. He's rebuilt the wall, just like he said he would do. He has sent scribes and priests to come back, and everybody's supposed to follow God, but yet they've all turned their back on him still. What do you do? Welcome to the book of First and Second Chronicles, you have a man who is heartbroken because they still won't listen. Have you not seen what has happened to our forefathers? What are you thinking? Why aren't you living for God? Now we're going to see what he does, what he writes to the people in First and Second Chronicles. So as we jump into a new book every time. We always answer four questions. Let's jump through those four questions very quickly. Number one, who was it written by? Okay, we're not sure. The Bible does not tell us. But do you remember back in Ezra, in the very beginning, when he sent the first 50,000 people, he didn't go on that trip, but he sent them, how he listed the 50,000 people that went? Okay, then when he went, he listed again the genealogy. Ezra was a list guy. So, myself included. Because there's such a huge list in 1 Chronicles, we truly believe that Ezra probably wrote it. I'm not going to argue about it. In the end, God wrote it. Who did he write it to? Wrote it to us. Okay. But when you get right down to it, I believe Ezra probably wrote it. Secondly, who was it written to? The returned exiles. You know what we are, church. Come on. We're just a bunch of returned exiles. So it's literally a book straight to us. All right. What's the date? Okay, it doesn't really tell us, but because of Ezra, and we know Ezra returned in the four hundreds. We know Nehemiah returned in the four hundreds. I would imagine First and Second Chronicles was written during the four hundreds. Okay, and many of the Jews believe it was the last book written, even after Malachi. But they put it here because it was the history. But number four, what was the purpose? Of the book of First and Second Chronicles is to show that the messianic line is going to come through our history. because listen, listen, you need to know your history in order for you to go where God the Father wants you to go. Amen. So let's jump right into first and Second Chronicles. Now listen to me, please please, please listen. I've got 26 minutes to walk through 56 chapters. Hold on. First and Second Chronicles has 65 chapters. I already told you that, okay? Let's jump right into this and look at the point that God is trying to make through the author to his people. Chapters 1 through, first Chronicles chapters 1 through 9 summarize the entire Old Testament by naming the main characters. If you go read 1 Chronicles 1 through 9, you're going to sleep. It is the son of, who is the son of, who was, who was the son of, who did, who was the son of. Let, let me show you verse 1, chapter 1, 1 in First Chronicles. Here we go. Adam, Seth, Enosh. There's verse 1. Wow. That'll change your life. See, 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 but what you need to know is you got to know where you came from in order to know where God's taken you. Amen. And so there's a very specific point of why you have nine chapters from Adam all the way to the returned exiles. Let me give you a good example. How many of you, and I am guilty of this, so if you don't raise your hand, I have. You're watching a movie, and you see somebody in the movie, and you recognize them from another movie. And so after you recognize it, it bothers you so much, you start asking the people who are trying to watch the movie who that person is. And then, because you can't figure out who they were, you get your phone out, and then you figure out, oh! And you almost scream in the theater. That's who that was. How many of you ever done that before? Yeah, I was probably one of the guys before I fell in love with history. Looked at you, was like, shut up. But see, here's the thing. Listen, listen. You recognized that movie from the main character that you just saw. What the author is doing is he is showing you. The movie, and he wants you to recognize the movie through the main characters. That's good, Pastor. You ain't caught it yet. But if you ever read it and you understand it, you'll understand that was really good. Because he wants you to recognize the story through the characters. So if I started with Adam, how many of you know the story of Adam and Eve? Right. So he's saying our story goes all the way back to, that is not a trick question. Genesis, here we go. Our story, the author wants us to know, goes all the way back to Adam, which is in Genesis. Genesis. So he starts at the beginning, and he wants you to recognize the main characters. Now, you need to understand that the temple, the representation of God the Father, where he is among the unholy people, plays a huge part. And the temple was the representation of Jesus Christ. People have asked me, I don't know how many times, What are you going to do after Dust of Glory? we got two options. Dust of Glory again, because when I say, what was the book of Haggai about? Four people go, what was that about? Oh, get your butt back to work. And then when four people said, get your butt back to work, other people go, get your butt back to work. I want you to know just a sense about each one. So I have a choice. I could do Dust of Glory again, because you ain't going to remember half of it, because you don't go home and read the Bible, you don't really study it. Or I could do a series called Everything Points to Jesus. Everything in the Bible, here we go, points to Jesus. So when we have the temple, do you understand what the point of the temple was? It's pointing to Jesus. Now, chapters 1 through 9 are nothing but that lineage. am not going to read them. But it's proving the lineage of Jesus comes through the greatest king we ever have. Okay, if you go read Matthew one, what's the point of the book of Matthew? Right, he starts in Matthew one with the genealogy of Jesus, and he takes us all the way through to prove that Jesus comes through the lineage of David. So here's the point of what he's trying to do in First Chronicles: We may be at a point in our history now where the author is going, "What are you thinking?" Wake your butt up! But you need to understand where we come from and where God has taken us. There are times that in this church I want to grab people and say, what are you thinking? Wake up! But I know what the Bible says and I know where the Bible's pointing us. Chapters 10 through 29 are all about King David. Now, let me make a very specific point. Here's a good example. Most of you know that the entire front row right here, uh, my family, were all in Wise, Virginia this week. Why? Because Debbie's mom just passed away. Well, Michelle, she, she basically summarized Bonnie's entire life during the funeral. Incredible, incredible job. I've never been at a funeral when the speaker stepped off the stage, people started clapping. And when she got done summarizing Bonnie's life, the place literally erupted in applause. Why? Because it was the perfect picture of Bonnie. Now, Now, as good as my mother-in-law was, and I've heard a lot of whore mother-in-law stories. I didn't have those. My mother-in-law loved me. She accepted me. Now, it's saying that. Did my mother-in-law have her faults? Everybody say yes, even though you didn't know her. You're not going to hurt Debbie's feelings. Did my mother-in-law have her faults? Yes. But were those mentioned in the funeral? No, not at all. We highlighted who she was. So we're at dinner that night, and this is what one of my sons says. Oh, I can't wait for your funeral. (laughs) I'm thinking, I could take that in a really bad way. But do you understand what they're saying? We can't wait to tell the dad stories. Oh, some of your stories will be told in the funeral. And I thought, oh, I know what you're going to say. You're going to talk about how I love God, how I love my hot smoking wife, how I love my kids, how I was a great golfer, how my body was such a physical specimen, how. What you laughing about? You see, you see, when you get to the end of someone's life, you don't want to beat them down. What do you want to do? Okay, that's the point of First Chronicles. We're going to read the rest of 1 Chronicles, and all of it is about King David, and all of it is about how great a man of God and a king he was. Why? Did he have his faults? Oh, my goodness. Do you want to start naming them? Remember Bathsheba? Remember him trying to kill Uriah? Oh, sorry, not to try, did? Do you remember that after his son Absalom came, and, 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 and then we had the raping of Tamar, and then we and he did nothing about Do you remember all the bad stuff? Did King David have his faults? The author is saying, Look, I know King King David had his faults, but he's the greatest king we ever had. And our lineage is coming right through his loins. So, what I want to do is tell you about how great our King is. So as you walk your way through First Chronicles, you're reading that David is this glamorized, incredible king. You're right, he is. He's dead. Don't need to beat him down, but I need you to understand as a group of people to understand who David is and how I need to build him up. Take your Bibles. Turn to First Chronicles. Turn to First Chronicles. Turn to First Chronicles 15. Now remember, I got the speed teach, guys. I got 20 minutes left to hit all this. First Chronicles, chapter 15. All right, let's same from the beginning to First Chronicles. Same with me. Genesis. Look at this. Come on, man. First Chronicles. In the days to come, we will start doing that through the entire Old Testament because we're about to start knocking them out. How many of you could not do that before, Dust of Glory? That's why we're doing this. First Chronicles chapter 15 says this. David built houses for himself. Now remember, what's the author doing about David? Pumping him up. You're the man, David. you the man. you the king. Oh, you the king. In fact, you're such a great king. Jesus himself will come through your loins. David built houses for himself in the city of David, and he prepared a place for the Ark of God and pitched a tent for it. Then David said that no one but the Levites may carry the Ark of God. That goes back to when someone touched it and they died, and now he's bringing it in, we ain't got time for all that. May carry the Ark of God, for the Lord had chosen them to carry the Ark of the Lord and to minister to him forever. And David assembled all Israel at Jerusalem to bring up the Ark of the Lord to his place, which he had prepared for it. Do you see what a great king we have in David? He prepared this place, and he brought the ark back, and look what God's doing through this great king that we have. Go to chapter 16, verse 1. And they brought the ark of God and set it inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before God. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord and distributed to all Israel, both both men and women, to each a loaf of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins. Look what a great king we have. He's so incredible. He brought the ark back. We have a place to come worship, and he even fed all his people. Oh, look what a great king we have. Go to chapter 17. Verse 1. Now, when David lived in this house, David said to Nathan the prophet, behold... I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent. What's the point King David's making? Why do I live in a house better than God does? Do you see what the author's doing? Our king is so great that he's even worried about God and where he's dwelling. That's how great a king we have. And Nathan said to David, do all that is in your heart, for God is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, it is not you who will build my house, and dwell in it. For I've not lived in the house since the day I brought you up out of Israel this day, but I have gone from tent to tent and from dwelling to dwelling. If you remember, the Bible tells us that David, you're not the one to build my house. Why? Because you've shed blood. Well, you shed blood for me, but you shed blood. So you're not going to build my house. Who is? Chapters 22, 22 through 29 are nothing but David's preparations for the temple. He gets the plans, he gets all the wood, he starts getting the silver, he starts getting the gold, he starts getting the cedar. It is nothing but David coming up with everything to build the temple. Listen, what's the point that the author is trying to make? I just did a great job and you don't even answer. Look how great our king is. He's so great that he brought God back into our place. He's so great that he fed all of us. He's so great that he now wants to build God a house. What's the point that the author's trying to make? Look how great our king is. Why does he want everybody to understand how great their king is? Because that is the lineage. That is what? That's what is going to come from. That's where the Messiah is going to come from. You need to understand how great our Messiah is because he's coming through the lineage of the greatest king we've ever had. There's First chronicles. Go to chapter 22, First Chronicles chapter 22. Pastor, you're doing a really good job in getting no help whatsoever. You people didn't have a clue that this is what this meant. you sitting there acting like, oh, I already knew all that. You did not. Help a brother out. How many of you are learning something? Thank you. And you sitting there looking at me like, you got all this. Chapter 22, verse 2 says, David commanded to gather together the residents, aliens who were in the land of Israel, and set stonecutters to prepare... Dressed stones for building the house of God. Man, he's getting everybody together. David also provided great quantities of iron for nails for the doors, for the gates, for the clamps, as well as bronze and quantities beyond weighing. And cedar timbers without number for the Sidonians and Tyrians brought great quantities of cedar to David. For David said, Solomon, my son, is young and inexperienced. And the house that is to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent of fame and glory throughout all the lands. I will therefore make preparations for it. So David provided materials in great Quantity before his death. There it is. There's 1 Chronicles. 1 Chronicles is twofold. Number one, it is to show that the Messiah is coming from where? King David's lineage. It takes us all the way back for the first nine chapters. What are the first nine chapters? From Adam, the lineage, the genealogy. From Adam to the returned exiles. Then what are the following chapters, chapters 10 through about? King David. And they're saying, what about King David? How great great he is. And why does it matter how great he is? Because that's where Messiah's coming from. But then the second thing was that King David was the greatest king ever. So the author is trying to teach people, listen, you've turned your back on God. You need to know where we've come from in order to know where we're going. First Chronicles, he just showed them where they came from. Second Chronicles. It's twofold also. Number one, obedience equals blessings from God. Now catch this. Why is it so important to teach people that obedience equals blessings from God? Because what are they doing? Disobeying God. But then the second part of that is disobedience equals failure and hardships. If you people don't wake your butt up, you don't understand what God the Father says that he will do. And for some reason, listen church, listen. For some reason you believe you can live however you want and God continue to bless you. Does anything sound familiar? And so we walk through 2 Chronicles with the author trying to make a point. Say this with me. Obedience equals Is that hard to comprehend? Then quick question, why are so many children of God living such a disobedient lifestyle? I'll tell you why. Because somewhere in our minds we've begun to believe that if God loves us, then he'll just continue to give us health, wealth, and prosperity. And when you live in the richest country there is, it's easy to believe that. But that's called religion. When you fall radically in love with Jesus, you try to live... The holiest life you can because of who he is and what he's done. Yesterday I, I taught uh, part of the first half of the class of our advanced track. Advanced track are for those who just come, sit, leave. And you now get it and you begin to want to serve. Because you understand that once you got saved, it's no longer about you. It's about him using you to reach them. Amen. And I asked the question. You don't have to answer. How many of you in the room believe, don't answer. How many of you in the room believe that you're held accountable for your sin? And i am telling you, about 100% of the room went up. I said, okay, okay. I set my advanced track book down. I walked up and I said, okay. What did Jesus die for? And the entire room said, our sins. And I said, for how many of them? They said, all of them. Okay, I'm so confused. If we're held accountable for our sins... And Jesus died for all of our sins. Which sins are you held accountable for? And as usual, when I teach this, people are going, I never thought of that before. All right, go read Romans 8.1. It says, therefore, those who are a child of God now, there is no condemnation. So then the, why are you telling us this, Pastor? Hold on. Well, then if there's no condemnation, If I'm not held accountable for sin, why not go sin? Oh, look at it this way. This is exactly what I taught them. There's my hot smoking wife right there. 41 years tomorrow. I understand that I'm 58, but I look like I'm 28. I understand that, okay? And with me being such a physical specimen and looking like I'm 28, if I desired to go out into the world and try to have another woman to have sex with, could I do it? And even if I couldn't find one, I could pay one. Fair enough? Well, then why in the world don't I do that if I'm not going to be held accountable for my sin? Could it be that I'm radically in love with that woman right there and I don't want to go out and do that against her? Could it be maybe the reason after you've been saved is you don't want to go sin is because you fell radically in love with Jesus? No, you're not held accountable for your sin. The blood and the cross did that, but something should be in you to say, I never want to sin again because of the blood and what he did for me. Oh, I don't have to worry about my sin. That's called religion. I'm just covered by the grace. Oh, I've been saved, and I can't wait to change the world for him because I'm in love for him, and now I have a hatred for my sin. That's called a radical love relationship. That's exactly what he is teaching Obedience equals, come on church, but disobedience, chapters 1 through 7. In 2 Chronicles, you have Solomon building the temple. He's taken everything that his father gave him and he's building this incredible, this magnificent place for God the Father to dwell. Go to 2 Chronicles chapter 7. 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Verse 1. First 7 chapters, man, we see just Solomon building this temple. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. That's the same thing that we read back in 1 Kings. And what we're good doing is we're getting another snapshot, another picture of this is the greatest it's ever been. That was the greatest we've ever seen in our country, in our nation, for God's people. So why in the world don't you want to get back to that? We get to chapter 10, and we see the kingdom is divided. I showed you that. That's where Ahijah came. He ripped that, took it into pieces and gave 10 of them to Jeroboam. And because of that, Solomon tried to kill Jeroboam because he knew that the kingdom was going to be divided. He went to Egypt and hid. Solomon dies, and now here comes Jeroboam. 2 Chronicles chapter 10. 2 Chronicles chapter 10. Rehoboam, Solomon's son, went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam, that's the one that's going to be the king of the northern kingdoms, the son of Nebat heard of it. Remember, he'd gone to Egypt to hide from Solomon, for he was in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon. Then Jeroboam returned from Egypt, and they sent and called him And Jeroboam, and all Israel came and said to Rehoboam, your father made our yoke heavy. So now you've got Jeroboam coming to Rehoboam saying, look, your daddy made us pay a lot of taxes. This is all about taxes. It's all about money. And we need you to take it, give us a little bit of slack here. Just take a little bit of the burden off of us, would you? Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. He said to them, come to me again in three days. So the people went away. Well, Rehoboam goes and listens to his young counselors. The young one said, make it heavier. Make them pay more. The older men said, man, give them a break and they'll serve you forever. But he's listening to his young buddies. Great, great gold nugget here. You better be careful who you listen to. You better be careful who you listen to. Your bestest buddies will take you down a path that God doesn't want you to go. You better learn to listen to God and go where God wants to take you. So here we go again. Remember, Rehoboam is Solomon's son. Jeroboam was the commander of Solomon's army. Jeroboam goes to Rehoboam, representing the nation of Israel, and says, lighten our yoke. Just back off a little bit, and we'll serve you. Go to 2 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 1. He said no. So then we split. That's why, that's why we have the split, the northern kingdom and southern kingdom. Look at verse 12 now. Now remember, remember, chapter 12. Remember what I said. The point of 2 Chronicles is obedience equals Bless. blessings. Disobedience equals Look at, look, at, look at verse 12, chapter 12, verse 1. When the rule of Rehoboam was established and he was strong, listen, he abandoned the law of the Lord and all Israel with him. You better be careful who you follow. You better be careful who you put over you. In the fifth year of King Rehoboam, because they had been unfaithful, because why? They'd been unfaithful to the Lord. Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem with 1,200 chariots and 60,000 horsemen. And the people were without number who came with him from Egypt. Libyans, Sulkum, Ethiopians. Do I have verse 4 in here? Yes. And he took the fortified cities of Judah and came as far as Jerusalem. Why is God allowing Rehoboam to lose everything he had? Because he's disobedient to God. Is God speaking to us through the Word of God also? Then you need to understand exactly what the author of Second Chronicles is making a point of. Obedience, come on, church, say it with me. Equals disobedience equals read second chronicles. Can I be honest with you? Read the Bible. Read the Bible. God, the Father is very clear. If you will do this, come on, church. I'll do this for you. But if you don't and you do this, this is what's going to happen. He's reiterating the point again. Skip all the way to 2 Chronicles chapter 34. I don't have time to sit here and read them. But there's lesson after lesson from king after king after king. Go all the way to verse 34, chapter 34. This is King Josiah. King Josiah was a good or bad king? Good king. He loved the Lord. Look at chapter 34, verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and he walked in the ways of David his father, and he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. So what's Josiah doing? Serving God. God's been very clear. When you serve God, what happens? Blessings. Keep going. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek God of David, his father. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the ashram and the carved and the metal images. Well, guess what happens to Israel during the reign of King Josiah? God begins to bless them in a great way. I wonder why. Because... Say it with me. Obedience. Disobedience. Why? We're going to finish. Why is the author of 2 Chronicles trying to drive this point home? Come on, church. Because everybody has turned their back on God, and he's saying, you see where we've come from, you know where we are, and you know that if you'll be obedient to God, God will bless your socks off. So why do you keep living the way you are? Second Chronicles. And Second Chronicles ends... It's such a weird one. 2 Chronicles 36, just read it with me. says this, verse 23. Thus says Cyrus, the king of Persia. Okay, who is Cyrus, I don't know, the king of Persia? What did he do? Take us to the book of Ezra, 539. He made a decree. What was the decree? So we started in 1 Chronicles with the first word being, come on, say it, Adam. And we finish with what? Cyrus saying you can go home. We've covered the entire Old Testament from Adam to the returned exiles. Why? He's trying to make a point. If you'll be obedient, the blessings of God will be unbelievable. But if you're disobedient, the hardships and failures will fall upon you in a great way. And it doesn't happen overnight. But it slowly begins to turn. Here's what happens, guys. When you turn your back on God, it changes the way you see things. It changes the way you think about things, it changes the way you live your life over a very slow period. And then one day you wake up and you go, I don't understand where I why I'm where I am. You want me to help you? Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. Do you remember why God gave him all the kingdoms of the earth to punish God's people? And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem. Does God use pagan kings? I've said it before. Why does God have to use pagans? Because his children are so disobedient. To build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you, of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. And Second Chronicles ends. That's it. So here we go. What's First Chronicles about? You need to know where you came from. From Adam, all the way. And you need to know that your king was the greatest king ever. Second Chronicles, very simple. You need to understand that obedience, uh, faithful, obedience brings blessings. Disobedience brings failures and hardships. Well, now we move forward into a time in which 2 Chronicles was talking about. Oh, there's this guy coming through the lineage of David. And his name is, come on, his name is Jesus. Matthew 20 says this. I don't have time to turn there. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, he's making his way into Jerusalem. This is right before Palm Sunday. You see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. Jesus came and prophesied to them exactly who he was and what he was going to do. Do you understand that after he did this, he prophesied to you what he's doing right now. John 14 says it this way. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, come on church, I what? I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, I may be, that you may be also. Here's my question. Are you full of religion and going to be left behind or are you radically in love with Jesus and be taken with him? First and 2 Chronicles was a letter written straight to the returned exiles but it's also a letter written straight to you. You need to understand that you're the lineage of David is where our Messiah came from and you need to understand that our Messiah has said very clearly, if you're obedient you'll be amazed at what I'll do for you. But if you're disobedient, you just need to suck up the hardships and the failures. And while I'm away, I'm preparing a mansion for those who are mine. There's first and second Chronicles. <clears throat> Father God, I love you so much. I thank you for who you are, what you are, and what you gave us in your word. My prayer is simply this, that you just open the minds of your believers as we dig into your word so that we'll know God's word, so that we'll know God's will for our life, so that we can change the world for him. And everybody said...